Welcome to the Believe Book Club podcast, a podcast for big dreamers who love all things personal growth and books. I'm your host, Kim Reed. If you're ready to join a community of like-minded soul seekers taking their love of books and all things personal development to the next level, then you're absolutely in the right place. Each fortnight, we'll dive deep into one of your favorite books, meeting the authors who created them, sharing their stories of what led them to explore these important topics that speak right to our soul and have us sitting up to attention, ready to take action. Hearts open, minds open, books open. Let's believe we can together. Welcome to episode two. I'm super excited to share with you our very first author chat with Dr. Tara Swart. We read her book, The Source, as part of our book club in August, and our minds were blown. Our minds were open to how we can truly achieve peak brain performance. So cool. So Dr. Tara Swart, she is a neuroscientist. She's a leadership coach, an award-winning author, and a medical doctor. She works with leaders all over the world to help them achieve mental resilience and peak brain performance, improving their ability to manage stress, regulate emotions, and retain information. I really loved chatting with Tara about her book, The Source. In this episode, we spoke about what is the source? how it's been so powerful in bringing visions into reality for so many people, including our book clubbers, how the brain is geared to make us stay safe and how it's an effort for many people to build optimism. She shows how we can practice visualization using all our senses. She speaks about brain health and the four parts to resilience. We also spoke a bit about how to move through a fear of failure. So if you're ready to learn how to access your full brain to reach your fullest potential, then I highly recommend this book and listening to today's episode. Enjoy. Hey, thank you so much, Tara, for chatting with me about your book, The Source. We had the best month last month in August, reading your book and studying your book and chatting all things about your book. So I would love for you to just to start with giving us your simplest definition of what The Source is. Okay, well, thank you so much for reading my book. Um, it was actually really special for me that it was in August because that was my birthday month. And yeah. Um, as you know, yeah, I was in Australia. <laughs> so it was wonderful just following what, you know, all of you were doing. Um, so the source, the simplest definition, I would say, is using your fully integrated brain power. Because we all have strengths and preferences, it's really easy to not think about it and rely on, let's say, being super logical and maybe quite intuitive. Um, In the source, I describe six ways of thinking that if you put them all together, really gets the most out of your brain. And they are mastering your emotions, understanding your brain-body connection, trusting your gut, which is your intuition, 
making good decisions based on logic, staying motivated and resilient towards whatever goals you have in life, and then um, using your creativity to design the life and the real world outcomes that you want. Amazing, amazing. And I, I loved how simple you made it. Um, just in, in your description then, but also in the book. And I remember seeing a talk once from a scientist and she said, if a scientist can explain something to a 10-year-old, then they fully understand it themselves. Um, and when I first picked up your book, I, I saw that it was written by a neuroscientist and I thought, oh man, is this just going to go way over my head? Um, but there was obviously some really complex discussions in there but it was very easy to understand so thank you so much for making it understandable <laughs> that's the biggest compliment I have a similar phrase which is if you can explain it to your grandmother so that she can understand it then you are you know you've got you've got it right so yeah that's literally the biggest compliment you could give me <laughs> good well I'm not a 10 year old or a grandmother but I could still <laughs> I could still understand it, so I'm very grateful. Um, so, Tara, you grew up with a spiritual practice, so you spoke about how you did yoga and meditation growing up as a child um, and then became a neuroscientist. So can you share with us how those two worlds have begun to collide or have collided? Yeah, thank you so much for putting it like that because I would say as a child you can imagine growing up with a really different culture and I grew up in London, I just wanted to be like my friends. So I didn't really appreciate all those things that I had access to from a young age. And the only way that I could make sense of it was to totally separate them. So I had the things that I did at home and then what life was like at school. And as I grew older, you know, what I studied at uni and I just kept them totally separate. And I'd sort of made my peace with that, but I think inside there was quite a big conflict. So Actually, when I lived in Australia, I started practicing yoga from my own choice and my friends were doing it. It sort of started to feel a bit different. Um, and then I also evolved my career, you know, from being just a, the usual very mainstream doctor to being more holistic. So a little bit like in the source, bringing in all these different elements. And it was almost quite a sudden thing, but I guess it built up over time where it went from these two things are totally separate to actually these two things massively go together so much so that I wanted to look into it. And that's probably what led me to writing the source. Amazing. Amazing. It's just, it came together so beautifully. Did you ever expect that um, you would end up being like an author of a self-development book? <laughs> um, no, but what's interesting is that a few people, clients I've had over the years and this amazing woman that I met on a yoga retreat have said to me, do you remember telling us that that's what you wanted to do? And I, I've actually said, I don't remember saying that, but I think the idea was definitely bubbling up for a long, long time. Um, when I did my PhD, when I wrote it up, that was one of the most stressful periods of my life. It was probably the only time in my life that I actually wanted to give up at something because I'm not the kind of person that wants to give up at things. Um, but, you know, I got through it, but it was really stressful. So when it came to writing a book, it, it brought up those memories for me. And the only way that I could do it was to have a co-author or co-authors that I really cared about not letting them down. 
So I definitely had this idea in the back of my head that I couldn't write a book by myself, which was really interesting because the process of writing the source was so cathartic. And where I'd started to think that spirituality and science definitely have, you know, an amazing cohesion, it was only really by finishing writing the book and it coming out and seeing the amazing reaction that that's really embedded for me. Yeah, so it was a big learning process for you, just understanding how it all came together by the end of your book. Yeah. Massive, but so empowering because I would look at things that I've written and think, well, obviously I'd thought this anyway, but I could see it coming true in front of my eyes and it was really amazing. You know, now when I get, because on Instagram, almost every day I get pictures from people of their vision board. And sometimes it's people saying, oh, I took this photo and then I looked on my vision board and it was exactly the same image. And that's just happened so many times now and it's happened to me. So when I see it happening to other people, I still can't quite believe it, but then I just have to keep saying, but that's the source when it works. <laughs> yes. I, I love how in your book you actually call vision boards action boards. Um, I really love that idea. Thanks for reminding me of that because obviously the, the common phrase is vision boards and I do use that too, but I was really clear as I was writing about my own um, boards that I've been doing for about 10 years that it's not about creating an amazing image and then thinking somehow that will come true. It's definitely about you doing things towards making it come true. Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to talk a bit about an abundant mindset. Um, so often people get stuck in a lack mindset. Why do you think that is that people get stuck there and focus on things that they don't have rather than things that they do have? So, so this is one of the really sciencey bits, which is since we lived in the cave, for our species to survive, which it has done really well, mm -hmm. brain is geared to avoid loss more than it is to seek reward. So um, basically, it's about twice as strong an effect. So we try to keep ourselves safe before we think, okay, what other good things could I bring into my life? That's a totally natural gearing that's been wired into our brains for millennia. Mm -hmm. So it's really difficult to overcome it. And if we're not proactive about how we think, our natural default is to think, what bad thing could happen to me? How should I avoid losing what I've got? So it really is an effort every day to try to think, okay, I'm safe. I've got the basic things that I need to survive. Now, how can I make my life better? How can I do things for other people? How can I trust and collaborate and build that abundance and optimism. Yeah, great. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, manifesting. And when people are really super clear on what they want to manifest, and they might even pop it up on their action board, um, but if that's not their destiny or if that's not the way the universe is going to play out for them, maybe there's something better for them. And for an example, it might be they're very specific on a job that they want to have um, mm. and they may not get that job. What is your advice for those people that feel like um, it's just not working for them? Yeah, I think we've all been there. So, you know, that's something that everybody can understand. And, you know, I can think of many examples for myself of that kind of feeling. What I've learned over time, and definitely it all came together when I was writing, was that sometimes things make sense a lot later. Mm -hmm. So I think you'll remember as part of the 12 um, laws of attraction that I 
wrote about patience was one of them. Yeah. And with the vision board, which I suggest doing annually, I think I've said in the book, or I certainly say in real life, that maybe not everything will come true in that year. Sometimes it spills over into the next year or even longer than that. So I think there's two things. One is that the things that you really want that maybe are right for you might take a bit longer than you think to come true. And then the things that you think you really want, but for some reason aren't right for you, it might take even longer for you to look back and think, actually, it worked out better that that wasn't right. And so we do have to have that certain amount of trust in however you like to call it, the universe, the future. Um, And it's really difficult sometimes to let go of what we think we should have or what we think we want. And so we can really fight it as well. And there's this beautiful quote I read recently, which is, sometimes when a door closes, we stare at it for so long and so longingly that we don't notice that another door has opened. Yes. Um, Yeah. So, you know, who's to say why certain things are right and they aren't, but I believe that the better we get at letting go, the more space we create for the right things to come into our life. Um, You know, I think a really obvious example of what you've said is if we're very focused on material things, Mm -hmm. um, then you know, we can say, well, I want those things because all my friends have them or I want them because celebrities have them. And I think we do need to dig deeper than that and, and not focus on actual things, but focus on how we want to live, our values and things like that. I think the most classic example of saying, but I really, really want this and not understanding why it's not working is a bad relationship. Mm-hmm. So to be honest, one of the reasons I wrote the book was because I'd just seen too many great people stay longer than they should in a relationship that was actually damaging their self-esteem and, you know, taking away their abundance. So I think it is sometimes about stepping back and asking yourself those really hard questions. Do I really want this? Why do I really want it? Um, What else could be an option that's sort of, you know, truer to how I want to live my life? It's tough and it it takes years, but I think the more we do the kind of self-development work that's in the source and other similar books, the more we can accept that maybe it's not everything that we want right now is is totally right for us in the long term. Yeah, absolutely. And I definitely agree with you on that patience bit. And sometimes we we just want things right now, don't we? (laughs) We don't want to wait for it. But yeah, that patience is really important. So I wanted to talk to you about visualization and I really love the part on visualization. I, I actually used it um, for some public speaking that I was doing. I was doing some public speaking in a big group and it isn't my favourite thing to do. Um, but I used your exercise and did a visualisation and really just pictured the room that I was going to be in, the people that were going to be there. I actually um, smelt an essential oil while I was doing the visualisation. And then before I went to do my talk I smelt that oil again and it brought me back to how I wanted to feel while I was going to be speaking and it was really really powerful so I'd love for you to share with us why visualization is so powerful to our brains so I love that you mentioned the other senses because actually to me a complete visualization involves you know what it tastes like what it sounds like what it smells like and using an essential oil is a really good idea because Um, smell and memory and emotion are very strongly connected in the brain. So you can, you know, exactly what you've done, use a smell to anchor you to, you know, a vision that you've created. Mm -hmm. However, most of us are very visual creatures. It's kind of, 
you know, we, it's, it seems to be a, a sense that outweighs other senses and importance to our brain. And so what we know is that anything new is seen by the brain as a threat. So for instance, in your example, if you could have visited the venue the day before or the morning before you actually spoke, that would have been even better because then you've actually seen the room that you're going to be in. If you're not able to do that, then, um, then visualizing it, imagining a sea of faces looking at you, um, but then you know, putting your positive twist on it, the applause, the smiles, the, the great questions that you can answer, <laughs> not that nightmare of I get asked a question and I go totally blank. Yeah. Um, so it's basically priming your brain for, to, to look out for all the positives that are going to make you successful on the day. So you have raised in your consciousness all the good things that could happen. And that means that you're more likely to notice someone in the audience smiling or nodding. You're more likely to notice that you are actually feeling calm and relaxed rather than focusing on something like, you know, heart beating. So it's basically, it's creating the, the ideal outcome that you would like, but at the same time, it's priming your brain to notice that that's happening during the real situation so that you then just go with the flow rather than those anxieties that can come up. Yeah, amazing. It was so powerful. It's very helpful. So thank you very much for that. <laughs> so I wanted to talk to you about neuroplasticity and it's very exciting for anyone that wants to make big changes in their lives. But often people think, I'm just wired that way or that's just the way I am. Um, so can you just talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, so neuroplasticity has to be the most exciting advance in neuroscience research in the last 20 years or so. Mm -hmm. um, because we used to think that by the age of 18, our personality was really fixed and that you're basically stuck with the brain that you've got by adulthood um, for the rest of your life until you get, you know, sort of to the age where you start to lose your memory and things like that. So that's quite a bleak story, really. Um, <laughs> luckily, the science moved on and showed that um, apart from the obvious times, sort of, you know, zero to two, where the brain grows so much and children just learn an incredible amount and they're like sponges. And then teenage, where we, we prune our brains to make them super sophisticated at the things that we need for survival, like being emotionally intelligent and social, as well as the sort of, you know, the learning that we do at school. We know that that process is very active and that the brain is still very malleable until we're about 25. So everything you experience, everyone you meet, every, everything you smell, every memory that you recall, every emotion that you experience is molding and shaping your brain very actively till you're about 25. From 25 to 65, you can do things to keep your brain flexible or what in science speak we call plastic, but you know, not same as plastic um so it's like plasticity which means that your brain can change so the best analogy is learning a language so children that grow up bilingual you know it looks so easy they can speak two three more languages and they keep those for life but you are capable of learning a new language at your age it might take a bit more hard work it might take a bit longer you might never become totally fluent but you can learn a new language and so I use that analogy in the source to say anything else you want to do, whether it's becoming more intuitive, more empathic, more creative, improving your relationships, starting your own business, whatever it is, 
it's the same process in your brain as learning a language. So when people say, well, how long does it take to you know, make a big change like that? It really depends what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a big believer in people making lots of little changes. So if you start with things like drink an extra glass of water every day, go to bed half an hour earlier, walk 1,000 more steps each day, then you build up to your brain becoming more flexible and then you can take on bigger things. Um, and then there's a window between your late 30s and early 40s where you can do all those sorts of lifestyle um, healthy behaviours to even prevent the, some of the cognitive decline that occurs from around the age of 70. Yeah, interesting. And you spoke about brain health in your book. Mm-hmm. It's probably nothing, it's probably... I haven't really considered that in the past. Like you think about uh, nutrition and getting enough water and things like that to be healthy, like to have a healthy body, but you don't really think I'm doing it for my brain. Can you talk about why nutrition and water and exercise are so important for brain health? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it is amazing how people think, well, I should eat this because I want to stay slim or I'm, you know, training for a marathon or I want to build up my muscles or, um, you know, I, I drink a coffee when I sort of, you know, need to feel more awake. But we don't really go that further step and think it's actually like mostly about our brain. So our brain only weighs two or three kilos. It's a tiny percentage of our body weight, but it actually uses up 25 to 30 percent of the breakdown products of what we eat. So it's a very energy-hungry organ. Yeah. And all the thinking that we do, it doesn't come from nowhere. We need food and oxygen to allow us to think. So food is a really important one. And um, eating regularly means that your brain has the blood supply with the, the glucose in it. So glucose doesn't mean eat sugary things. It's the breakdown products of a healthy, balanced diet. Um, And then I usually say, try to eat as many brain-friendly foods in a day as you can. So the oily fish like salmon and mackerel, eggs, avocado, nuts and seeds, leafy greens, um, and water. I mean, you know, similarly to what you said about we think about our bodies, but not our brains. I think we think about our cars more than we think about our brains. So you'd never drive your car without checking that the water was topped up. But you might, you know, many people go to work having grabbed a coffee and not drinking any water. Um, and it's, you know, it's a chemical and physiological thing that our neurons need to be hydrated to send those electrical messages that, that make up our thinking. Um, and actually, a 1% to 3% um, decrease in our hydration levels can negatively affect our memory and our focus and our concentration. Um, by the time you're thirsty you're way more than 3% dehydrated. Um, And ideally, we need to drink half a litre of water for every 15 kilos of our body weight per day. So that's one and a half to three litres for most average weight people. Um, And most people, I don't think, drink enough. So, um, And everybody says, oh my goodness, if I started drinking that much water, I'd just be in the bathroom all day. But you build it up slowly. So you just start by drinking an extra glass today, two glasses tomorrow, etc. Um, sleep is the one that, you know, it's easy to, to skimp on, mm-hmm. but it's so, so important for our brain power. It's important for your brain power the day after a good night's sleep. You really need, well, 98 to 99% of 
humans need seven to nine hours of good quality sleep. Um, it affects your operating IQ the next day if you have a significant disruption to that. And then I've written in the book about the longer term implications of, of not getting enough sleep over your lifetime, which unfortunately now has been proven to be connected to um, rates of dementia, dementing diseases like Alzheimer's. So yeah, it's a really important one to, to you know, bring in that good practice into your life. Um, I mentioned oxygen. So, you know, that's basically breathing. But, you know, if you, especially if you have a sedentary job, then making sure you get up and move around, find a form of exercise that you enjoy. Um, these are really basic fundamental building blocks for your brain to just stay in a physically healthy state. And all those amazing things that we talk about, like um, creativity and intuition and having great relationships and, you know, building the, the work life that we want those things can't happen if you're not working with, you know, a, a properly rested and fed and hydrated brain to start off with. Yeah, it's so important. So I wanted to talk to you about resilience and bouncing back. So this is something I teach my children. I've got three young children, so I teach them about resilience and bouncing back. Um, but uh, the last few years I've been doing some business coaching with some women and I've just noticed how difficult it is for some adults um, to experience any sense of failure. There's so much fear of failure out there. Um, and could you just speak to us about resilience and why that's so difficult for some adults? I think that it's difficult at least partly because we don't understand it properly. We either think, oh, I should just keep going when, you know, when things are tough or, or we think that, you know, maybe Kim is very resilient, but I'm not. And that's just how it is. So there are a few things around that, that we need to rethink. A really nice way of thinking about resilience is in four parts, which is physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual. Mm -hmm. And, you know, spiritual can mean based on your values or your integrity if, you know, if you're not spiritual in that sense of the word. But basically, physical resilience is that you can cope with the load that's physically put on your body. Like, let's say you're weight training, that there's a certain amount of weight that you can lift, but then you always rest your muscles afterwards, and that's how you build them. Mental resilience is knowing that you have the tools to get through difficult times knowing that you can make things better if they go wrong. That's such an integral part of dealing with failure because life, unfortunately, means that sometimes things will go wrong or at least that they'll change in a way that you didn't expect or something will happen that wasn't in your plan. So what do you do when that happens? And it's really about understanding that you've got strength, you've got friends that you can ask for help, you've got things that you're grateful for, you've got things that you have achieved and to focus on those rather than just focusing on the current thing that hasn't worked out. I always say the only mistakes are ones that we don't learn from. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if something goes wrong or if you make a mistake, then at least say, okay, what's one thing that I can learn from this so that I can be better in future. Then it's not just a failure. Um, emotionally, it's very easy to go down a negative spiral when something goes, doesn't go like how you'd like it to. Um, and personally, I think when you're in a negative spiral, isn't really the time to suddenly try to be positive. It's about cultivating that gratitude practice or, you know, in the good times. 
-hmm. and maybe keeping a list of the things that you're really proud of and that you've achieved so that when it ever comes to a point that something's gone wrong and you feel really negative emotionally, you can actually go and read that list. You don't have to think and overturn the negativity. You've got something at hand that can help you. And then spiritually, I think that, you know, there are some people or situations after which you just feel totally drained. And then there are some situations, even when you're tired, even when things are going wrong, that you feel like energized. So it's about really listening to that part of you and knowing that resilience over time is about exposing yourself more and more to those energizing situations and people and just being very mindful of not exposing yourself too much to things that drain you or that cross your integrity. Yeah, great. Thank you. Uh, So you spoke about how creativity is so important to fire up the source. Um, And you spoke about creativity doesn't mean that you can go and paint a beautiful picture. Can you share with us what creativity means to you? This was really important to me because I was one of those people at school who was told that I wasn't creative because I wasn't good at art. Mm -hmm. Um, And I found out years later, about sort of, I don't know, five to 10 years ago now, when I went to the design school at Stanford, which is this incredible place that you know, brings together all sorts of different ways of thinking to produce innovation, that there's an entire generation of people that didn't believe they were creative because they weren't good at art at school. This was a revelation for me. That was something I thought was just me. And when I found out, no, that this is a thing, yeah. um, I really wanted to do something about it. And so when I was looking at the brain pathways that build up our whole you know, integrative thinking, creativity was a really important part of that one. And that's where I thought, okay, how do I put this to people to relieve them from that feeling that they may have had like me, that they're not creative. And I looked around and I thought, you know, I've created my, my little home. Um, people, you've, you know, you've created a family with three children. Um, we create the way that we look every day. Um, we might've actually, you know, made some things like your vision board is creative you know, writing the book was creative for me. Um, and I know that, you know, you work with essential oils and I'm sure you make up combinations for things and that's, you know, that's creativity. So it's about looking at creativity in a totally different way and basically saying, I have the power to create the life that I want. I'm not a victim where life happens to me. Isn't that the best type of creativity, having the life that you want, not necessarily drawing a picture or singing a song? Um, Although, to be honest, it made me realise, even if I sing really badly, so what? If I enjoy singing, I'm still going to do it. Still creative. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's something I've been telling myself for such a long time too. And so my background's preschool teaching. Um, And it wasn't until I was doing my preschool teaching, and obviously we had a lot of art um, subjects that we were studying and I thought oh gee I'm not going to be any good at this and it was actually uh, where I got my highest grades in in the arts and I was really surprised and I just opened my mind up to the possibility that perhaps I was a little bit creative and it looked a little bit different to what I expected but um, I think just when you are told when you're younger that you're not creative or maybe you're some people even make that story themselves. I guess that's a new pathway that you start building from such a young age and it's just something you believe for so long. Yeah. Yeah. 
it relates back to a lot of the things that you've said about failure and manifestation, which is that you believe what you believe. But actually, some of those things you could challenge. And that's probably really what the source is, is about. Yeah, absolutely. So you spoke about um, one of the most important things for change is raised awareness. Can you share with us why that raised awareness is so important? Well, it's so perfect from what we've just talked about, which is um, another one of my favorite phrases is you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. So if something is low in your awareness or not in your awareness, then you can't do anything about it because you don't even know that it's there. So whether it's a lot of soul searching and personal development work or going out there to your friends and family and asking for feedback or, you know, maybe thinking about some opinions that you ignored in the past, but they keep coming up thinking, okay, maybe there's something to that. So I think journaling is an amazing way of raising your awareness. If you write, um, you know, for three, six, 12 months, and, and I add in really importantly that you read back over it so that you see the patterns that repeat, that's where you can raise your awareness about something that hasn't been obvious to you. Because when you read in your own handwriting, or I guess these days, you know, read your typing um, and see a thought process or a situation or something that happens in, in your relationships that keeps repeating itself. It's not even somebody else's opinion. You know that that's, that's you and it's happening without you even realizing. And, and I've had this experience myself of reading back through my journal and just thinking, oh my goodness, how many times have I done that thing? But I wasn't aware at the time that it was a, you know, a repeated behavior. So um, a huge part of the source is about raising from non-conscious to conscious what it is that's holding you back. Yeah, yeah. So once people are aware, um, there's obviously fear of failure that comes in and you spoke about how fear of failure is the enemy to positive change. Um, so, so often we know what we should be doing. Like that might be, we know that we should go for a run, but... Uh, don't really feel like it or we know that we should eat the, the right foods or do you know what I mean? So can you just share about how um, that fear of failure comes in? So going back to what we talked about earlier about loss, avo loss avoidance, how the brain is geared to avoid loss more than it is to seek a reward. It's almost like at those times when we need that extra push to start running or change our diet, it feels like our brain's working against us because it doesn't want us to take a risk because um, anything that's new or a change is, is, is threatening. That's why it's really important to actually keep yourself in a physically healthy state, because that's when it's easier to overturn that risk of failure. And I've outlined in the book a four-step process that helps us to come, you know, to build up to, to being able to, able to get over that risk of failure, which is the first part is the raised awareness. The second part is focused attention. So it's just looking out for opportunities, but not doing anything yet. Mm -hmm. Looking back maybe at your week and thinking, actually, I could have gone for a run twice. There was that morning that I woke up a bit late or there was that time that, you know, I went out for drinks with friends when I, I could have had half an hour and gone for a run. Mm -hmm. um, there was that dinner where I made that bad choice and I could have had the vegetables instead, you know, like that kind of thing. So noticing that more and more, maybe writing it in your journal. And then the third step is 
to try one one thing like that to actually go for that first run or you know to have a meat free week or whatever it is so do something really small like with friends and family that doesn't feel like too much of a risk and then just to build it up over time and i always say to my coaching clients that you know let's say after a month they had promised to go to the gym four times and and eat more healthily if it's a no then why not? Let's look at why not. Let's not beat yourself up because you didn't do it. Let's try to learn something from it. Um, I mean, I always say, yeah, there are all these healthy things that we should be trying to do as much as possible, but don't stress about it too much because it's the stress that will kill you. So I try to have a, a lighthearted approach to it and just get myself more and more comfortable at trying new and different things and just, you know, just understanding what it feels like when that goes wrong and kind of being more and more okay with that over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. So with the closing visualization that you had at the end of your book, one of our book clubbers had a profound experience with that. And she just had a little question for you. And she said that as she um, went in the door and was doing the mirror activities, she felt like she was letting go of a lot of limiting beliefs that she's had in the past. Um, and she just wanted to know if that was the purpose of that visualisation. Oh, my God, you're going to make me cry. That's <laughs> just so amazing. Um, yeah, you know, like I said, as I was writing the book, I thought about myself in the past. I thought about so many girlfriends and male friends actually as well, who didn't believe in themselves and, you know, sort of either sort of just settled for things that weren't good enough for them or just didn't believe that they would get, they could have like, you know, these amazing things that we, I think it's not, it's a human tendency to protect ourselves by limiting our beliefs. And that exercise is about being your best self, living your best life. And I really do believe when I do that exercise in groups that something actually changes in your brain. And, but to hear somebody say that who has just read the book, who hasn't, you know, I haven't spoken to them, I haven't talked through it with them, is, is amazing. That, I can't believe you saved that till the end and said that to me. That <laughs> made me so happy um, if it's just her then that's amazing but I'd like to think that there are people out there that I don't even know who are reading the book who are you know, getting an insight like that because we all deserve that and it's definitely true if you start to think differently if you let go of those limiting beliefs your life will be better Absolutely. And your closing statement in your book, you are the source, the creator of your life. Like it's a profound thought. Like, and a lot of people don't, don't truly understand that. No. Yeah. No. And I think, you know, that that's part of the human condition as well, that hopefully people evolve to the point where they do believe that. Um, often it takes a crisis like a divorce or a bereavement to really push people to you know, to start to think in that way. But again, one of the reasons I wrote the book was, wouldn't it be wonderful if nothing went wrong and you just decided to, you know, believe that and live like that anyway? So, yeah. yeah so I'm just so thrilled that you got so many people to read the book in your book club. Thank you. Yes, no worries. And I just have one closing question, um, which our book clubbers love to know. They love book recommendations. Do you have a game changer book that you've read that you just love? 
this was one that kept me awake at night because there, there are quite a few. Can I have more than one? Yes, you can. <laughs> right. Um, well, I did say in the book that I read this very old book um, from the 1920s called The Master Key System, which was my inspiration for writing the source. Um, you could, I mean, it's not even printed anymore, so I think it's possible to get it on Amazon Marketplace. But to be honest, the source is like the modern secular kind of scientific version of that but I'd say the two books that have you know really touched my soul um are The Alchemist by Paolo Coelho um you know alchemy is about turning lead into gold and I think a real insight for me was you can do that to yourself it's not about physically gold it's about you being your best self and then the other one is um Siddhartha by Herman Hesse which is you know about a young boy that becomes a monk and um, learns that he can he can wait, he can pray, and he can fast. And when I read it, I didn't really get it. But as I thought more about patience and emotion, mastering your emotions, which I think is the hardest thing to do, I started to equate it to hunger. Like when you feel hungry, you can either eat something straight away or you can wait and that hunger actually does pass. And that had a huge impact on me about like negative emotions that we experience that you can either reach for that glass of wine or you can shout and scream or you can wait and it, it's not going to last forever. So those had really profound impacts on me. And I would say bits from all of those three books informed me writing the source as it, as it came out. hope you loved this episode if you want to dive in deeper to this juicy topic explored on this podcast and connect with like-minded book lovers head over to believebookclub.com and join our free book club today the best part is you can join from absolutely anywhere in the world and i cannot wait to see you over there